Uh, Frank, if you can begin. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Frank Gritty. Uh, for those of you who don't know me uh, who are watching, um, I'm associate professor in the Department of History and also in the African-American and African Diaspora Studies Department. Thanks for bearing with us. We're um, just managing the technological um, aspects of this conversation, uh, but we're very excited to be here. You know, normally uh, faculty and students spend their summers doing their research figuring out what they're going to teach next year, among other things, but this is not a normal summer. Indeed, this is not a normal year. Uh, and the COVID-19 pandemic has sent many of us scrambling around trying to figure out how we're going to do our jobs, how we're going to carry out our teaching, our scholarship, and our administrative work over the next few months in the year. And then, of course, uh, there have been the, uh, the protests uh, prompted by the murders of Breonna Taylor and uh, George Floyd and the extraordinary moment that we're facing uh, in the history of this country and indeed the history of the world. This panel, Black Lives Matter, a conversation with historians invites us as historians and members of the Columbia community and those of us who are watching to reflect on what's happening in the country and in the, in the world right now. Of course, it has been prompted by the extraordinary protest movement that has enveloped the country and the world. But many of us uh, in our department and indeed elsewhere have been engaged in social justice oriented activism, scholarship, teaching, mentoring and advocacy for quite some time. Right. Um, and at the department level, I will say our, our Committee on Inclusion and Diversity, despite its vanilla title, has been slowly working on taking on many of the challenges presented by uh, the Me Too movement, the Women's March, Black Lives Matter, and trying to figure out ways to incorporate it into our department culture. So this panel really is, is, is a reflection of these uh, departmental level efforts on the individual and the collective level. It's, com it's comprised of a selection of faculty, students, and staff who've been doing this kind of work and individually and collectively for some time. Indeed, we were quite intentional with the organization of this panel to show that this work does not simply fall on the backs, uh, the shoulders of black and minoritized scholars. A session like this one, one of its goals, I think, is to empower all of us to take on the demands of this kind of work. Uh, I want to thank uh, really quickly our chair, the History Department Chair, Adam Costo, for supporting uh, the, the CID's work and for this particular um, initiative. But in particular, I want to thank Emma Scheinbaum and Saida Islam, who are going to be the co-moderators of our uh, session today. Emma is our communications uh, coordinator and um, development coordinator. Saida Islam is the is director of faculty affairs. Uh, and it's really them uh, who have really inspired us to have this urgent conversation today. So without further ado, I want to pass it over to Emma and Saida, Saida who will uh, take us through our session. My name is Emma Scheinbaum, as Frank said, and Saida and I initiated this panel series with the help of Frank, associate professor and current committee chair of, sorry, current chair of the Committee on Inclusion and Diversity. This is the first of many ongoing conversations that will continue between us as individuals and internally as people. We invite you all to reflect and continue these conversations after the panel discussion. Our goal is to contextualize our reality with history and to create a space where we can learn, think critically, heal and take action. We are including faculty, graduate students, undergraduate students and staff members in this dialogue. These issues have always been an emergency and we hope this panel series will not only call attention to this, but will be a place where we can process, learn and instigate change together. 
We thank you all for being here, to our colleagues in the department for the support and our work-study students for their assistance. We also welcome you to attend our upcoming panels, the dates of which are to be announced. Saida, you're on mute. It would be helpful to uh, be off of mute. Thank you for that, Emma. And um, as, as Frank and Emma already uh, introduced me, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, jump into introducing our panelists. And I wanna thank you all for uh, volunteering your time to be here with us today. I'm gonna to start off with Manan Ahmed. He's the associate professor. He's a historian of South Asia and the littoral Western Indian Ocean from 1000 to 1800 CE. Stephanie McCurry is a professor of his history. She specializes in the American Civil War and Reconstruction, the 19th century United States, the American South, and the history of women and gender. She is also interested in the study of Confederate monuments and memory and slavery and its legacy in US. Amanda Faulkner is a PhD student in the history department. She studies social and commercial exchange in the early modern world, especially the Dutch empire. She is particularly interested in 17th century plague and its repercussions. And Frank Garrity is an associate professor who spe specializes in sports history, urban history, and the history of the African diaspora in the Americas. With that said, I'm going to to uh, jump right into our first question here. This question is for uh, all panelists, um, if you can or, uh, answer in the order of the introduction. Um, the first question is, what brought you to your studies and how do you connect your studies in history to the reality of our current moment? So Manan, if you can start, please. Right, thank you so much, uh, Emma, and thank you so much, Saida. First of all, for organizing this conversation, I think it's uh, um, it's a great step, important for our department, and also important that um, you have you're the ones who are taking the lead, bringing us uh, faculty, students, graduate students, undergraduates together. So thank you very much for your labor on this. Um, for your you know kind of thinking about um, you know there's so many pathways through which we come to what where we come. Um, as scholars, um, and obviously there are many personal, intellectual, cultural, social reasons for why we study what we study. But in the context of the conversation we're having and why the urgency that we're having this conversation, which is the movement for Black Lives, um, I do want to um, think back and see how profoundly I was shaped by the Los Angeles uprising of 1992, which was something that occurred um, um, maybe four or five months after I had arrived in this country as a um, young student uh, for my BAs. And that was my, not just my introduction to the United States, to the English language, um, to the you know, college campus, um, but also to this history of race um, that I was ignorant of in, in um, I wouldn't say in, in it almost entirely. Um, and that uprising and its impact on the community, a community of which I was a part of, I was living um, very close to Koreatown at the time, um, profoundly shaped how I thought about what structures of power and how those who were um, deemed to be um, on the margins, who were um, put in both spatial as well as cultural constraints in, and asked to do to bear the burden of the society 
um, were kept also outside of the classrooms. Um, so when you, when I took, I remember taking my my introduction to uh, American history class as an undergraduate, um, and feeling both the absence of a true reckoning of slavery, but also um, the things that I was uh, at that time starting to think about, which was the global history of colonialism. Um, so I think that was uh, that experience and, and my own kind of study from that really shaped how um, I, I constituted myself or thought about myself as, as doing my scholarship. And secondly, I, I do think that that all of us who have worked uh, and, and are come, coming from uh, or worked in working class communities understand how race and class intersect, um, especially in the making of community. And that experience of, of being in the service industry or being um, working in, in farms um, allowed us access uh, that I never had in, in my own, the, the, the community and the country I came from. Um, and I think those were the, some of the key kind of moments that shaped my, my perspective on, on United States. Thank you. I'll stop there. Should I just go ahead, Saida? Yes. Hi, everybody at Columbia and everywhere else. So wonderful to be together. And thanks again to Emma and Saida for uh, initiating this whole conversation. So I think my own, the, the connection between my own personal biography and the scholarship I do in this particular moment is kind of um, telling because one of the things that this moment brings home, I think very clearly is the global scope of protest and uh, resistance to white supremacist structures and practice. So we have the George Floyd murder in the United States uh, and the endemic problem of political violence here, but we can see that it's triggering connected protests in Europe where the brutal legacy of slavery and the slave trade is also very much at issue in contemporary political movements. And in a way it's like watching a map of the 17th century, the 15th to 19th century slave trade and the legacy and slavery all over the world. And in all of those places that were touched by this at one time historically, protesters are challenging public commemoration and valorization of the figures who are connected uh, to those histories. And what I, where I enter this story is to say that it was always so. I grew up in a world uh, like this in Belfast under British colonial rule uh, during the troubles. And that was a world of police violence, legal impunity, colonial power, racist violence. Irish Catholics were understood and understood themselves, were, were marked as an inferior race. It's not a concept of race that makes much sense in the United States, but it does, it does there. Um, and in that moment, one of the fundamental lessons I learned that became a historian was that people will only take so much before they rise in resistance. This has been proved again and again and again. And in 1968, when Northern Irish uh, nationalists, Republicans, as they were called, when they rose up, the world was on fire. It wasn't just Northern Ireland, it was the whole world. And the Irish rose against British rule with symbols of the United States uh, and the global civil rights and anti-colonial movements in the front of their minds. So there was uh, images of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Che Guevara and Mandela and Steve Biko and Yasser Arafat, and they were painted on the walls of Belfast along with hunger strikers like Bobby Sands. The news every night was one blast after another, South Africa, Cuba, Palestine, it was, that was the world. And then, and then would come Belfast, one other fire in this global fire. Um, 
So living through that struggle, oh, and apparently George Floyd is already on the political murals and in the walls in Catholic Belfast, not in Protestant Belfast. But living through that struggle, uh, I learned that people will only take so much. But the other thing I learned that really stayed with me is that those movements could be crushed by violence, that human bodies are frail vehicles of protest. Uh, and that's what happened in Ireland in the late 1960s and 1970s and into the 80s. And so when I was forced into the diaspora with my family to Canada, where the politics never interested me, I became obsessed with issues of violence and political legitimacy. How does a regime get to call itself the rule of law or law and order when it's acting in this openly um, violent way? Um, and I was entirely unable to professionalize my politics about Ireland. I could never write about it in any way that passed for scholarship. I tried. Um, and so when I was introduced to the history of American slavery in college, and particularly on the subject of Jefferson as a slaveholder, I was just gripped. It made eminent sense to me. And I think what I did was move my obsession backwards and across the Atlantic to write about enslavers, slaveholders, enslavers as we now think of them. And first of all, how they legitimized their system so that they could bring other non-slaveholding white people into that uh, white supremacist worldview. And then later I wrote about the Confederacy and how they tried to make an explicitly pro-slavery and white supremacist nation. So I, I was grappling with these questions that mattered to me personally in my own personal history, but in another setting that I could get a little distance from me. Um, so for me, in that sense, what I study has always been connected to the politics of oppression and resistance. It's just more obvious at this particular moment and um, maybe a little bit more useful than it is at other times when the scholarship looks like scholarship. It's very gratifying to realize that even these little things we do, like writing about the American, you know, the Confederacy can be acts of allyship in a, in a certain moment. Um, so I think I'm very focused on that right now. Amanda, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Yeah, so thank so first of all, thank you very much to Emma and Zaida for organizing this, as everyone has said. I think it's a very valuable opportunity for our community to think about these very important questions, and I'm grateful that you've sort of opened up this forum. So I am a PhD student here in the History Department at Columbia, and my research currently focuses on 17th century plague in the Dutch Republic. And I initially became interested in this because I've always been fascinated by how interpersonal relationships shape experiences of social and cultural and economic phenomena. And as we are seeing right now, epidemic outbreaks of disease are all of these things, as well as epidemiological phenomenon. So um, as we have all been here in quarantine, I've had a lot of time to think about how my research relates to the moment that we're living through, um, to the social and cultural repercussions of disease outbreaks, as well as to the structures of, of power and the systemic forces that advantage and advantage some people and disadvantage other people. And many, many things have changed since the 17th century where my research is focused to today. But one thing that has not changed in the many centuries that have passed is that there are, these systems still exist and there are still people who really experience the repercussions of lasting uh, oppression, lasting marginalization, and what we're seeing currently is a, a moment when it's really hard to look away from the consequences of, of those historical events. And I think 
COVID-19 is an experience that we are all having across the globe, but it's also an experience that everyone is having in their individual communities. And the community that you're in is determining whether you have access to resources, whether the people around you are healthy and safe, whether you can go to the country when the, the epidemic strikes the city. And these kinds of factors really determine so many or influence so many areas of your life up to and including who lives and who dies, who has who, who lives in poverty and who doesn't. And uh, I think as we are, are seeing these events unfold across the country and around the world, um, we have to be thoughtful about the, the things that have shifted since the 17th century and before and the things that have not. And so that's one thing that my research has helped me to think about as we've been all living through this moment. Yeah, I'll just jump in quickly. Um, uh, you know, uh, as a as a um, child of uh, Afro-Caribbean uh, immigrants who came to this uh, New York City in the 1940s and 50s, um, uh, and some of you came of age in the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, this this moment uh, speaks directly to everything I've been doing and living, <laughs> I would say, uh, uh, since uh, certainly and certainly since I became more politically aware in the in my late high school and early college years. So, you know, uh, much of what I uh, would say resonates with what's been said already by the other panelists. Certainly in the late 80s, when I was in college, early 90s, there was this kind of reawakening of Black activism around the figure of Malcolm X. My generation, uh, you know, discovered X uh, in, a, in an interesting moment, precisely in the moment that Manon highlighted, right, of the of, um, of the Rodney King uh, um, verdict and the uprisings that ensued afterwards, right, in the early 1990s. Uh, and then, uh, you know, of course, as is often the case with scholars, um, you know, I had some influential professors, Naim Inachala, who was actually a specialist on colonialism in South Asia, uh, gave me a sense of the kind of global um, aspects and the colonial roots of, uh, of white supremacist uh, colonialities, right? Uh, scholars like Horace Campbell, uh, uh, an activist scholar was very much influenced by Walter Rodney and C.L.R. James, allowed me to kind of understand the Caribbean aspects of uh, the Black freedom struggle. And so in my own work, in my own research and teaching, looking at uh, the Black experience in the Caribbean, the Spanish-speaking Americas, and more recently in the United States, um, you know, I think that uh, what we're experiencing now has been directly related to everything I've been teaching and writing about. Uh, and that's been gratifying and exciting. Uh, and is imposing some new demands on my time, which I, I welcome, actually. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, I think what's, what's clear here is um, so much of what's happening is, is, is this entanglements of class, uh, gender, sexuality, and racial hierarchies, right? And we see this in the history of the Black freedom movement, and we're seeing it uh, right now uh, in the COVID-19 COVID pandemic and, and the protests are showing these, the, the interconnectedness of these issues. So yeah, so it's been gratifying to sort of see uh, this moment from the perspective of my own kind of trajectory as a scholar and as a, a racialized person uh, in this country. Thank you, thank you, everyone. Um, I will as, have a message for the, the participant or the attendees in the webinar right now. There's a Q and A feature on this webinar. Please submit your questions for the panelists, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, and this next question is going to be brought back to Frank. Um, you published recently in Colombian News uh, an article called Historic Protests Necessitate Historic Action by American Political Leaders. And you really do an excellent job of highlighting how protest is, it's not spontaneous. It's built on 
many generations and many decades of consciousness raising, as, you're, as you put it, and about the different uh, practices of racism and brutality and oppression um, in many different ways. And I'd love it if you could speak towards all the different, those different connections. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the points I was making in that piece has been have been made by other other scholars and activists for quite some time. And you know, what's interesting now is, uh, you know, we're locating our current moment in, in a in a in the history of uh, 400 years of uh, people of African descent being in this hemisphere, right? Uh, certainly, locating it back to slavery. Uh, indeed, this this is a, a part of a, another moment in this trans historical Black freedom struggle. But you know, to me, I'm, and maybe this is my bias as a 20th century historian. Uh, you know, I, I think so much of what we're experiencing right now, this iteration has really been shaped by what's been happening over the last 50 years, right? Uh, and and we know this because activists have been bringing this to our attention since then, of course, right? People like Angela Davis talking about political prisons in the late 60s and early 70s, people organizing around mass incarceration, which in fact is one of the the exploding fields in U.S. historiography right now, which has really shown us a long reach. Of, incarcer of carcerality in US history back to the 19th century and before, and certainly over the last 50 years. Black feminist activism, right? Uh, which uh, takes shape uh, again throughout US history and the history of the Americas, but really uh, starts to take shape in, in the 1970s with the Combahee River Collective. So I think what we're seeing now is, is the contemporary movement for Black Lives is bringing together all of these strands in an interesting kind of way, right? So certainly since the, the murders of Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, and Michael Brown, uh, you know, that sort of contributed to the upsurge of activism. Uh, but even things like Occupy that emerged in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, Me Too activism, the Women's March, right? All of these threads have come together uh, to, to where we are right now. And I think where we are right now is this kind of Black-led transracial movement, which is very powerful. And I think as we think about uh, what it means, I think, you know, we're, some of us are coming to a sort of literacy around anti-Black racism, but we cannot forget, and this is why I kind of bring together these, thread, these threads of movements uh, in, in my answer here, the ways in which these are all interconnected, right? We can't just do the work of anti-racism while forgetting about sex, sexism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, and class stratification. Right? And I think this is very important for us as, as people who, who are trying to move ahead and push these issues to the fore, right? They are interconnected. Uh, we can't just show that we know what anti-racism is. We have to, we have to demonstrate uh, how it's connected to these other isms and hierarchies that are, have contributed to this moment. Thank you so much, Frank. I'm going to uh, move on to Stephanie and McCurry if I can ask you a question here. Um, recently, you published an article in the Atlantic titled The Confederacy Wasn't What You Think and how the legacy, quote unquote, connects to monuments and the politics that surround them. Um, could you please elaborate on that article? Yeah, thank you, Saida. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, one of the things that I've been worrying about off and on over the years as Confederate monuments periodically become targets and sort of foci of, of protest organization, like after um, the Charleston massacre, uh, uh, Charlottesville was actually triggered by the attempt to protect uh, a monument of Lee um, and white militias and white supremacist militias gather and make the defense of the statues uh, uh, a sort of new uh, new incendiary moment. They create violence around the defense of these statues. And 
And over the years, oftentimes it, ha- it, can, it can be as if the, the Confederate statues get separated from the larger issues that are being contested by them. And so I wrote the article in The Atlantic because I thought that while people might, even people, progressive people might understand in some vague way why Confederate symbols are so offensive to uh, uh, people of African descent in the United States, they wouldn't necessarily know very much about the history of the Confederacy itself and what it stood for. And so all I really wanted to convey is what those statues commemorate so that people have a clear understanding in their mind of why they emerged as symbols of white supremacy in the first place. They're the OG or ur symbol of white supremacy because why? Because the Confederacy was a four year war against the United States to protect slavery, which they could no longer do to their satisfaction within the union. So they left the union, took the risk of war, waged a war against the United States for four years, specifically as they said, as it's easy to show, to protect the institution of slavery into perpetuity. This is what they wanted. They wanted to enslave African-American people for the duration and their children. And they were candid about this. The obfuscation started later. And so I just wanted to make it clear what it is that's being honored here, what's being commemorated on the landscape. There's another really important history which colleagues have written about um, very, very well, which is about the timing of those monuments. I mean, they're not put up right after the Civil War. People didn't love the Confederacy when they had to live in it. It was a really tyrannical kind of government, which was another thing I wanted. They had to lose. They're they're, They're a symbol of treason and defeat. And somehow in the United States, they they become these honored figures, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis. Uh, It's it's incredible the work that it took to erect those people as, uh, and for them to be now embraced as symbols of American heritage as the president is insisting on doing is direct provocation because they are not that. Uh, They come out of a different nation, an attempt to build an independent nation Um, And everybody knows what that nation um, stood for. And in fact, those statues were put up not immediately after the war, when it was very difficult to romanticize the Confederacy. They were put up starting 30 or 30 years later in the backlash to Black democracy and the progressive expansion of democracy uh, and of Black civil and political rights in Reconstruction. That's when they were put up, after the federal government gave up protecting Black people and their political and and civil ambitions in the South. Then when the white South got control of its own narrative, uh, it started to build these symbols. They were put up as direct threats. That's why African-Americans understand them as direct threats because they were direct threats. They they were put in front of courthouses, public squares. Uh, It has always been incredible to me that African-American taxpayers are supposed to send their children to schools called Robert E. Lee Elementary School or Calhoun College. It's outrageous. And what is going on around those now is just pouring, purposely pouring fuel on the fire. I'm very worried about the backlash, but what I would say is that, to go back to my original point, is that I'm incredibly hopeful because of exactly what Frank just finished saying. These statues are no longer just statues. They're they're understood for what they are, um, representations of a whole edifice of thinking and value and power in the United States that we no longer want to live with and that we insist the symbolic have to be symbolically taken down 
not because that matters simply as a symbolic matter, but because it's connected to a larger conversation and hopefully some kind of reckoning about the legacy of slavery in the United States. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, next question is for Amanda. Uh, you specialize, as you said, in uh, outbreaks uh, and pandemics, and you did say you specialize in the 17th century, but um, I am interested, as I'm sure everyone else is, uh, if you could speak to the disproportionate effects that COVID-19 has had on the Black community, um, not just limited to health, but socioeconomically and other social consequences. I want to preface my remarks by saying that um, while Black people in America have a common experience of Blackness, I would, I would hesitate to, um, I don't want to overgeneralize because the experience of the Black community in Minnesota is different from the Black community in New York City and et cetera. But one thing that I think I keep coming back to, as has been said early on this panel, is that questions of power and who gets to access it have direct repercussions for questions such as who, is, who gets to be sick and who gets to be healthy, uh, people who have less access to financial resources and social resources disproportionately feel the effects of any disaster, particularly a disaster like this, that moves quickly through communities and um, by a close proximity. And the, the repercussions of an event like this, of a, of a global pandemic are always going to be felt more by communities that will face more pressure when confronted by a, a problem like this because there, there are fewer resources that they have to fall back on or they, you know, they have fewer opportunities to go to different spaces that might help keep them safer. And what we're seeing now is sort of a moment of reckoning because of a, number, a confluence of events. We are all being forced to acknowledge that this pandemic, which was initially said to be a great leveler, is not in fact a great leveler and is being experienced very differently in different communities. Um, and also while that's happening, we're also still seeing uh, ongoing violence against black people and people of color by, um, by many institutions, but um, while, so some things have, have shifted dramatically and some things haven't. And I think it's, it's very, it's much easier to notice that if you haven't noticed it before because of the stark situation that we are all in as a global community right now and the unequal ways in which um, smaller communities within that larger global communities are experiencing that. Thank you for that, Amanda. Uh, our next question is for Manan. Why should issues surrounding anti-Blackness and police brutality be an issue for everyone and everywhere, not only limited to Black people living in America? You're on mute. Yes, thank you. You're on mute should be the first sentence everyone says in every Zoom. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, I think, I mean, as, as, uh, Mandy, as Amanda has already pointed out, that there is a world of the 17th century that seems to have institutional infrastructure that we can see still um, surrounding us, both in terms of 
the institutions that are built, but also in terms of some of the key legacies of that 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 world. And I think that the colonialism and um, enslavement of people uh, are two such institutions um, that work alongside capitalism to frame how there is a global globality to the phenomena that we are seeing here. Um, so if we think about for example, like the histories of the Royal African Soci Africa Society and the East India companies, um, both um, companies that emerge in uh, France, in, in, in the Netherlands, in um, UK, in which um, white elite, white men uh, invest their money either as uh, within the royal uh, families or as, um, uh, or as businessmen, as merchants. Um, both for the transportation of human beings enslaved against their will, but also for the acqu acquisition of territory um, and for the extraction of material uh, underneath that territory in South Asia, um, in, in South America, um, in the Caribbean. So those, um, so the histories of colonialism capitalism thus allow us to kind of think of this immediately as a global uh, issue um, that continues to this day. Um, one of the manifestation of that continuation it are, for example, the colonial laws that um, are did not not only organize societies um, in North America and in India, in the Caribbean, but they continue to organize societies in places like South Asia, um, where a lot of those colonial laws are still on the books and are actually used. Uh, sedition is used, um, the laws against abortion, laws against rape, all of these laws are continually part of the um, overall um, societies, even if we think of them as belonging to an earlier age, uh, to a colonized era. So I think one of the ways in which um, the question of anti-Blackness and police brutality becomes an issue for everyone and everywhere is precisely because the, the infrastructure of thought, of, of knowing that orients us uh, in dehumanizing someone um, are legacies or living legacies really um, in institutions around the world. And when we watch from a global perspective, when we watch um, the uprisings that are happening at the current moment, we do see them, uh, we, we see it as, as Stephanie said, there's a global map to it, but we also see how other communities, other oppressed communities, other marginalized communities um, can get to have a light shine on their plight within their context uh, under this um, global and unified struggle. Uh, I'm thinking here precisely about um, Native peoples, uh, both in Australia, um, in Peru, in, 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 in North America, who, um, whose lives get occluded, uh, both not only in the question of COVID-19, but also in the question of uh, uh, movement for, uh, for Black lives. Um, I'm also thinking about Dalits and Muslims in South Asia, who um, there have been a recent spate um, of lynchings in India under the context of the COVID um, lockdown. Um, uh, and before that, for eating beef uh, or acquisitions of eating beef. Um, so we see that these systems of dehumanization, of oppression, of violence, that target the marginalized, that target the historically eluded um, and occluded uh, communities. Uh, a moment like this, this global moment uh, where 
we are recognizing as a community anti-blackness allows us to think about um, all of the other solidarities that are necessarily a part of any um, restoration, any justice that we can imagine. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Ahmed. Um, our next question is for Stephanie. Um, on our, this is actually a question submitted by one of our graduate PhD students. Um, and the question is, on our own campus and in the broader society, how can we support modes of public and collective remembering that acknowledge and mourn legacies of white supremacy, genocide, displacement, terror, et cetera, while dismantling their physical le legacy? Well, of course, this is the immediate question that um, confronts us all. And <clears throat> it's not like I have some uh, fantastic answer to this. I, I think what I would say to begin with in, in the event that it's helpful at all is that, and, and I think my colleagues probably have more um, significant things to say about this, it's that I think we have to meet these challenges with what we have to bring. So you, you, if that's your will, if, if it's your intention to be part of the solution, to be part of the struggle, to be part of the recognition of the damage, then I think you have to uh, start where you live. And for me, that has, I mean, this sounds, I, I, I think this sounds, I'm afraid this sounds kind of trite and simplistic, but for me, that has always been as a teacher and a scholar. And uh, that um, this is where, I think I can bring what I know and what I understand to bear on a contemporary struggle. So, um, so I don't think, like for example, I, I think this is a really interesting moment because we're we're the history department, right? Uh, we're the whole history department, various parts of it at Columbia, and Saida and Emma probably already know that history departments, historians, and the humanities are not exactly the most valued part of any university. It's very easy to dis, dis, uh, underfund, et cetera. But one of the things that has been so striking about the last couple of months is the how you know everybody is relying on historians to decode what's going on in front of their eyes. The best journalists that are writing, Jamel Bowie and all these people, Hannah Nicole, the, the Smith, they're the people who are writing these incredible analyses for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Adam Serwer, they're drawing really heavily on the work of, of historians. And this makes perfect sense because the control of the historical narr narrative is incredibly important to people who are in power. And dismantling it is a really important part of, of, the ch of any challenge to that. So I, I think it's a simplistic answer, but I don't think it's a completely pointless answer. In part, it's to do what you do, but with more direct political intention. Um, and so for us, it, it, for me, you know, what can I contribute in this particular moment is, is to try to be sensitive to who should speak and, and when, uh, but to try to, uh, uh, you know, contribute what you can um, as a teacher, as a writer, as a, as a historian. Um, and I feel like it, I've always felt that. And I think this is a moment where we're kind of reminded of the value of that because our students actually are out there in the world. They aren't at all confused about what's going on. They're trying to educate their parents, their siblings, their friends. Um, you know, so what we do all the time is part and parcel of that struggle. Uh, and, you know, I, I want, I then want to be in conversation as we are today about ourselves and our own unit and 
trying to be more self-conscious about um, equity and recognition of the ways in which we're all uh, uh, potentially part of the problem if we don't think consciously enough about how this has all worked even in our own institution, in our own discipline. And I'm learning a huge amount um, uh, by the eruption of anger that people are expressing, black in the ivory, the way people are talking about what it means to be a historian, uh, a minority historian, an African-American historian in this moment, or uh, any other kind of minority historian in this moment. I have some small insight into that because it wasn't exactly easy to be a woman historian or a feminist historian either in the discipline. But I think, you know, um, the courses we teach, Colombian slavery, the things that we do in our own institution, but most importantly, I think how we treat each other and how we interact with each other and the, 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 the way we try to break down the hierarchies in our own, um, in our own community, that's part of it, an answer. Thank you. Um, let's see. Saida, I think you're asking the next question. Yeah, sorry, I was That's trying okay. to unmute, unmute myself. <laughs> so this is a two-parted question. Um, one we received via uh, email and one is uh, here in the chat, but they sort of go hand in hand, Frank. So um, I'm gonna start off by asking you this question. Uh, pulling it here from the chat, I'm gonna read it verbatim. It says, every news outlet slash media company is posting lists of suggested resources, readings, docs, podcasts, etc." For people, okay, just okay. For people to consult in this moment, could you each suggest, and starting with you, Frank, please, perhaps one resource that you think is necessary in this moment, perhaps something underappreciated slash underread. Um, the second part to the question, to this question, which was sent from someone else, but they go hand in hand. It says, also for people who feel helpless and are unsure how to be a part of the conversation or take action to bring about change what advice would you give to them on where to begin? So Frank, if you could please. Sure. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm struck by the, um, the, uh, uh, the interest in, uh, in, in the work that historians and activists are doing now. Uh, you know, I made a kind of uh, a sarcastic tweet the other day that a lot of people are peddling uh, anti-racist literature uh, and, and that's me being a snob probably but uh, you know the book that I think people need to read right now is uh, Barbara Ransby's Making All Black Lives Matter. Barbara Ransby, Professor Ransby, a, um, uh, an alum of Columbia but that's not the only reason why she's noteworthy right she's been a long time uh, a black woman historian activist wrote about Ella Baker, wrote about Islanda Robeson uh, and, and this book, which was published, I think, in 2017-18, really allows people to understand the kind of the current moment of Black activism that, that the Floyd uh, murder has uh, catalyzed. You know, so I think it, it brings together so many threads, that I think, folks, that I mentioned earlier, particularly the, the question around sexuality and feminism uh, and how it has really shaped this moment of Black uh, activism in ways that, uh, it, that it didn't maybe before. Um, and I think, uh, you know, where we start, you know, it's interesting, I, I, I talk to some people and some folks feel inspired and then some folks feel really um, helpless. Um, and, but, you know, I think what the COVID-19 pandemic has given us is uh, an urgency to, 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 to act. Uh, you know, we don't have a kind of, 
you know, um, the, the, the privilege of standing still just to survive, right? Even if that means, you know, putting on a mask every day. I know that seems silly, but I, I really think that there's, there's, there's a way in which the protests have demonstrated to us that we can act now, right? And not wait for somebody to tell us uh, to move, not, not worry about offending people, which is another thing that I think imprisons some folks right now. Uh, and I think there's just plenty of models out there that we see on social media that we see, you know, in our neighborhoods that I think people can can draw from. Right? And I think that, you know, I've been already a bit of, been a part of conversations on web, webinars where I see people talking very differently. Uh, people who are not black talking differently about systemic racism, uh, you know, and some of that is just regurgitation. But I think some of that is, is a real awakening that I see happening out there right now that I think uh, I think that, that that gives us models that we can draw from, you know, that's kind of a vague answer. But but, uh, you know, I'm hesitant to give prescriptions of what people could do. But I think I think we're seeing models out there in ways that we didn't before. Uh, and I think people are sort of following what Stephanie was saying. Just, just could think about what would work in their realm, in their lane, you know. Um, and I think that that's the way to proceed. Emma. Thank you. I was also trying to unmute again. That's <laughs> a theme. Um, Professor Ahmed, this is a question submitted via our Q&A. Why do you think it's important to decolonize the curriculum and how would you start to do so? And maybe we can start with maybe defining what decolonizing curriculum even means for those who might not know. Sure, sure. that's a big question. Um, yes. I, I, think, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think decolonization is generally meant uh, uh, to mark a a process, really, a movement um, of uh, various degrees of freedom through which, starting after the end of the Second World War, the previously colonized spaces um, became um, and asserted um, through, through resistance, through revolution, um, a, a, a way of emancipation, a way of having their, their freedom, and being able to control their territory, being able to control their subjecthood. Um, and I think um, the, the kind of thinking about decolonization um, has become very important uh, in recent years. Um, when I was in graduate school, we were often thinking about post-colony as a, as, a, as a rubric. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I come, I come from Pakistan. I grew up in a military dictatorship. Um, we never had post-colony, as I like to say, we, we had colonial rule and then we had martial rule. Um, and so there was no moment in which we could imagine uh, emancipatory politics without getting well shot. Um, and so I think decolonial decolonization as a movement more recently as an analytical movement or a way to think about um, the questions of power, uh, sovereignty and space have gotten um, um, I think have caught on or have gotten popular precisely because my sense is because it allows us to put to a lie um, the universal claim of enlightenment thought. So it allows us to, to confront enlightenment's um, the sort of um, insistence that uh, its understanding of humanity, of human rights, of uh, sovereignty, um, of law itself or liberal thought um, are somehow um, the, the most pristine, most, most immaculate, and, and most, um, uh, most um, resonant uh, versions of that. 
And I think decolonial thinkers, um, I'm thinking everyone from W.B. Du Bois to Amy and Suzanne Césaire to Gandhi and Baithgar, Malcolm X, Walter Rodney, Sylvia Winter, I mean, it's a huge list of scholars who um, were able to not just show the ways in which enlightenment politics, enlightenment policies um, contributed to the dehumanization and colonialization of the rest of the world of the darker people, as Vijay Prashad once said, um, but also it um, forced the colonized subject, um, uh, in, in the words of Fanon, to kind of think of himself as a, or uh, themselves as a, as a bifurcated individual. Um, so I think that's, that's so, sort of a thumbnail on that. Uh, um, how do we do the curriculum? I think, um, you know, we read these, um, these thinkers, um, we put them in our, in our syllabi. Um, but I, I would, I would even suggest that let's, let's start with admitting graduate students, uh, who are black indigenous POC. Let's hire black indigenous and POC historians. Let's tenure black indigenous and POC historians. Um, let's make them full professors. Let's give them chairs. Um, let's also change the name of the chairs that belong to racists and eugenicists. Um, so let's create a system through which we can think about thought, uh, about institution, about uh, syllabi, about um, ways in which we approach pedagogy, ways in which we approach scholarship. So it's, it's, it's far greater than citational politics, though citational politics is extremely important. It's far greater than um, drawing a straight line between uh, you know, Hobbes and Locke and, um, uh, you know, um, Barack Obama. Um, it is about um, recognizing the multiplicity of voices, the critiques, the resistances that are fundamental part of our history and making that our present. So that's, that's my, that will be my answer. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to pull another, um, question from the chat here. Um, it says, and, and this is for everyone, whoever wants to answer it first. How should uh, we communicate the history and present pervasion of systemic racism to people who are resistant to these ideas, especially those who distrust academia? Is it worth it to spend time trying to convince people of the existence of widespread anti-Blackness if they don't believe in it? Don't all jump up at once. <laughs> Frank, do you want to start with answering that question? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I don't have a coherent answer to that question. You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, I come from an era where I, I, I think many of us who, were, you know, see ourselves enlightened around systemic racism and social injustice, uh, you know, uh, find our own people. Right, you know, constitute community around uh, with people who are fellow travelers, uh, which is not to say that we're doctrinaire and that we all should think the same, but that you know, we sort of take for granted that people uh, are not gonna be convinced, you know. Uh, and so you build around the people who are persuaded or are willing to be persuaded. But I think what's happening now is that at least there's a performance of more people being persuaded, you know, and I think that presents us an opportunity. Um, you know, uh, whether that's the, you know, the institution of Columbia, whether that's corporate America, right? There's, a, there's been a rhetoric shift that's happened here in, in recent uh, weeks 
It's almost as if the corporate world is following the lead of Nike uh, when they decided to uh, uh, make Colin Kaepernick, uh, you know, do their ad in support of him in their formulaic kind of facile way, right? There's been a, there's been a major shift around uh, at least a rhetoric understanding of, of, um, of, of systemic racism. So, you know, even though there are going to be hardcore white nationalists and folks who, who don't think that it's, it's important, I, I think this moment presents us with an opportunity. This also goes to one of the other questions that are in the chat, right? But what's different about this moment? There's been this almost dizzying, you know, stunning reversal here in some ways, seemingly, right? In which, uh, you know, everywhere you turn, everybody's saying Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, you know, there could be, those of us could be, you know, cynical about it and, and snicker, but I think, I think it's a rhetorical opportunity for people who, who are seeking to convince and mobilize around these issues. And I think, so that's how I would answer that question. Uh, but, but also to not waste too much time uh, with those folks, because there's plenty of people to, to work with who, who are willing to be convinced. Yeah, I, I would also just say in following what Frank just mentioned that it's really interesting that in this sort of what is hopefully a late Trumpian moment, okay, hopefully we're near the end of this, when, um, when the, the conservative, there's a whole separate conserv conservative media universe, which felt so powerful for so long, doesn't quite feel like that anymore. And where uh, different versions of history are being referenced uh, than that than before. So that, like, for example, when I wrote that article in the Atlantic last week, you, I am still going to get that um, the, the, the predictable hate mail. Okay, it's going to come. There are people who can never be convinced. But what's striking is how many people uh, have moved, as Frank said, to a different position and who, so even with this enormously ginned up hostility to academics and to knowledge and to experts, there are these mediating figures and they're taking a huge amount of heat too, as the 1619 project showed, but the, it doesn't come necessarily directly from us. I guess that's one answer is that we teach teachers, we teach students, people, journalists read what we write, uh, not me specifically, but all of that am amazing scholarship that's out there. And it makes its way in and it becomes referenced. And then there's just the fact that, um, people in communities are making different decisions. I mean, the, the Confederate monument issue can look, for example, unmovable, and then people just take them down. It, it was in stasis for ages. You know, they were blocked by laws that the president is still trying to do that. He's trying to use the National Guard to protect these statues. Well, some people didn't wait for permission. They just took them down. And I read the most amazing thing today about um, ancestors of those Confederate generals who have been petitioning for years for those statues to be taken down and who were so relieved when protesters just dragged them off their pedestal. So there's good news out there. I mean, I, I think there is a lot of, you know, we have to worry that there's an awful lot of uh, virtue signaling going on and, and um, uh, corporate statements and so forth. But I think there's a lot of other things going on inside communities um, uh, that you can see the tip of the iceberg is when you see something getting toppled off, off stuff, but there's community work behind that. And not all that community work is the predictable people. So I, I think that's behind the shift that, that Frank's alluding to, um, that there's reasons something has changed and we rem it remains to be seen, has it really changed? And uh, I guess 
as a historian, what I'm wait, what I want to know is how bad is the backlash going to be. Um, that's what I'm waiting for. But I'm still also really hopeful that the mask is off and that you can't really defend Confederates. For example, you can't you can't defend those things anymore um, as a ventriloquist act for white supremacy. You just if you if you're going to stand with them, you're standing with white supremacy, and that's just not many people want to make that statement directly and in public. Thank you, very well said. Does anyone else wanna answer the question? Okay, Emma, I believe there's another question. Yes, there is one more question. Uh, this one is, it's a pedagogy question, so anyone who wants to answer it can. Um, it's uh, written, as an aspiring US history teacher, I want to accurately describe the brutal history of white supremacy and anti-black violence that we need to understand to make sense of this current moment. But I also don't want to, A, contribute to the desensitization to black death and that the constant bombardment of imagery, especially on social media, can reinforce, nor B, further traumatize black and other racialized students in multiracial classrooms. Do you, any of you have suggestions on how to navigate this? And again, this is for anyone in the panel. Um, I, I'll, I'll take a quick stab at it. I mean, I think uh, those of us who teach histories of colonialism are very well aware of the horrific um, images, uh, both uh, pre-photograph uh, and photographic of uh, colonized bodies put on display, um, colonized bodies uh, rendered in different forms uh, for dissection, both literal as well as um, analytical. Um, and so when we teach our classes, uh, it is very important as, as scholars and as pedagogues that we do not recreate that violence um, to put that back up on. Uh, I mean, I remember viscerally the first anthropology class I ever took where uh, the white professor started putting uh, ethnograph ethnographic images uh, in a, you know, at that time there was a corral and you did like click, 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 and it went, you know. Um, it, 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 it was the it was extremely traumatic to me as a as a person because the ethnographic the the field site for that colonial project was um, India for South Asia, so I think um, there's excellent amounts of resources both from feminist and queer scholars uh, from scholars of color uh, how to how to frame how to not show the image how to speak about the image uh, uh, excellent scholars like Saidi Hartman and Sector have written about it, um, so I think. Um, it is a it is up to us to communicate to our students how the the power of the image to render um, humanity and to dehumanize are both part and parcel of the of of the of the power of that image. So um, you know th this is something that as as teachers we we certainly need to foreground. Would anyone else like to speak to that? I mean, I would just say that I struggled with this very much. This, it's, it's interesting how teaching in this particular moment with all of this outside uh, and around us really brings those kinds of dilemmas home. Like how, how do you convey the history without showing the images of the brutality 
But how do you do that right now when we're already inundated with images of brutality? Um, and so I just didn't use a lot of images this time. But I think there are certain uh, just practices that are being offered now, uh, like very simple ones, like, and I think we can all, those of us who are academics can chart the moments when this changed, that we should talk about people as actors in their own history, not just as simply acted upon, so that in the very words we choose to talk about people, we're, 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 we're recognizing their humanity. So they are enslaved. Uh, that that was an act of something of dispossession, uh, an active act of dispossession, rather than that they were slaves, they were enslaved. Uh, I think the um, uh, certain practices like using that word, using enslavers, capitalizing the letter B, these are very, these are practices that are now entering um, uh, academic practice, which is always slow to, uh, to uh, adopt these things. And also, I think um, when you have to teach things like lynching, for example, I, I taught a course on the Ku Klux Klan this year, and it was horrendous to try to figure out what to do about these descriptions. And then later, the images of white supremacist lynching violence. But I think one strategy which we have learned from African-American studies is to use the critics of those practices from the time and place as the commentators on it so that they're not just sitting up there like these images of dehumanization and then you leave the students that in other words that the, they were never unchallenged and uncontested and i think one of the things we have to do is make sure that when we use them we reconstruct the conversation and the contestation around them and um that's something i'm learning uh, as i go because I don't necessarily know all the um, history of black resistance and protest in the later periods. But I think that's one strategy is that you don't comment on those things. You bring contemporaries to comment on those things. And you know, I think this is part of the reason, for example, why people are so interested in Ida B. Wells right now, is that as a black journalist in time and place, she did so much to publicize and challenge the claims of the lynchers and, um, you know, let's put up a few statues to Ida B. Wells around this country. I would also just tell teachers, especially, that there are uh, um, resources like the Equal Justice Initiative, which I think is amazing. If you go to their website, the way that, that they, the, the public history work they have done, the research that they have done, enormous resources on there for people to educate themselves and then use it with their students. So we are going to ask one more question from our Q&A and then we can wrap up. So uh, we have an anonymous or just a question sent uh, via Q&A. To what degree can Columbia's quote unquote rhetorical shift be engaged when public safety continues to hire from NYPD and invests in increased pol policing around campus and in Harlem? How can we push the university to put its money where its mouth is and cut ties with local PD? I'll, I'll jump in here. You know, probably our next session should be Columbia specific because uh, <laughs> the whole set I of agree. questions we haven't even dealt with yet, you know, even in terms of our department. Um, you know, we're in a moment of reckoning, right? Um, throughout the world, the country, the city in particular, and our institution, right? Uh, and I think uh, you know, part of that reckoning is gonna mean the reallocation of resources. 
right? Uh, uh, we've seen this in all the debates around defunding the police, right? Uh, I mean, there's been a, a super smart critiques of those who criticize the funding uh, argument by saying that, well, you know, blah, 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 and by demonstrating the bloated nature of police budgets. You know, there's a whole lot of bloated uh, um, uh, systems uh, in our in our in our own little world here. Let's put it that way, right? And so part of the answer here is not just evaluating the question of you know Columbia's relationship to NYPD, but really how 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 our institution is run, right? And how our city is run. I mean, one of the things that's is so striking to me as a native New Yorker, having come back here to live over the last five years, is how securitized and and hierarchical the public sphere is uh, in ways that it wasn't in the 1970s and 80s uh, when I was growing up here. You know, Columbia, and I think so much of the master narrative of New York is that, oh, well, Columbia, uh, New York is safer now, and everybody used to get mugged back in the day, and there was all this violence. And I think that some, and to some degree misrepresents uh, what New York was and what even these neighborhoods were. Uh, and so part of what we need to do is reevaluate our own investments in hierarchy and securitization, right? And this, and this is also something that's read that has really developed even post 9-11, right? There's a way in which we have succumbed to the securitizing apparatuses, um, you know, throughout the country, right? So, so I think, you know, having, you know, having become a semi-historian uh, of Columbia, I think that we're, we're in a moment here where like after 1968 or prompted by the 68 protests, we're gonna have to do a whole lot of evaluating of our, of our institution, where our resources go, uh, including uh, the, the question of public safety, right? If we're going to reimagine public safety, I suppose it's something we should be doing right here in Morningside Heights, West Harlem. Um, again, this is a bigger conversation, but you know, I kind of want to frame this as a as a bigger picture kind of topic because it's, it is immense. It's not just around security and and the police. It's really about the allocation of resources at our institution. Thank you, Frank. And I know that Emma said we were going to wrap up. Does someone else want to answer the question? I just wanted to add that I read today that the University of Pennsylvania president made a statement today that they would no longer hire uh, uh, Philadelphia police to work on campus. So, um, you know, it's starting. Yeah, definitely. I know we were going to wrap up, but there's actually one more question in the chat um, that I think needs to be answered. It says, many, many of you talked about the impact of various protest movements in the US and across the globe in your personal and, acad and academic growth. What are the parallels and differences you see between our current movement and the past ones in terms of strategies, demands, and responses? So this question is uh, for all panelists, whoever wants to answer first. I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I think um, the, um, I mean, one wants to think that all of these movements, uh, all of these protests are iterative, that I stand, if I stand in protest right now, I stand um, on the basis of protests that my elders stood for, uh, whether it was 10 years ago or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago. Um, in Pakistan, for example, we have these um, series of poets who were batoned and shot and imprisoned from the colonial period to now, and every single protest that I ever went to as a as a as a young student, um, and every single protest I see now on YouTube, um, those same lines of poetry are are being recited. Um, that's not a sign of stasis. That's a sign of the the depth of that movement and how that movement is always achieving 
always being. So I think uh, I see this movement uh, particularly um, as a, I mean, uh, there is a lot of um, uh, parallels that people are, are drawing between Ferguson and, and Minneapolis in the sense that why didn't certain certain sector of the population in the United States not come out as they did now. Um, I think they came out now because of Ferguson, not, not without it. There is no movement today if it wasn't for 68 and if it wasn't for, and 68, I mean, the, the riots of 68, the, the uprisings of 68 in LA or 92 or Ferguson or now. So I see this iterative. I do feel, one last thing I will say, I do feel that I am heartened most by the globality and the global recognition of, of solidarity across Palestine, across Kashmir, across Balochistan, across Dalit lives, um, that the movement now um, um, is representing and calling for. Um, it is no longer um, trying to kind of think about the particularity uh, as if it's the particular is, 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 is separated from the whole. I think um, this this insight, which our our decolonial thinkers have always uh, insisted upon, going back to the disenfranchised colonies, the essay by uh, W. B. Du Bois, um, 1944, 1945, um, and I think this is what's what's beautiful and powerful about this movement. So I see continuity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Manon. Um, with that, I'd just like to thank all of my colleagues, uh, especially Emma and our distinguished panelists who were very instrumental in making this webinar a reality. Uh, we hope you will join us again as this will be a monthly conversation. We hope and will continue uh, to, to continue having, we're committed to continue having these very important discussions on race, um, how to take action, and more, most importantly, a healing space. Please remember to practice self-care and take time to check in with yourself and others around you. Um, thank you again. And uh, now I'll turn it over to our panelists for any closing remarks. No, I'd, to, right, I'd also like to add that if you've registered, we're going to continue sending out more information. If you haven't registered, please do so. Um, and if you're a non-Columbia uh, uh, person, uh, <laughs> right, uh, you can contact us via Facebook. Um, maybe, Emma, maybe we can add our, our email or something if people want to. Yes, our email is history at columbia.edu. Um, and I did see that a bunch of people asked questions on our Facebook comments. And just so you know, we look, we see them. They won't be discarded. Uh, this is an ongoing series. So we're open to letting those questions bleed into other panels as well. So we're listening. <laughs> keep so keep submitting questions. Just like to say thank you uh, to Saida and Emma for taking leadership on this and inviting us into this conversation, which feels very different. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, I want to also thank uh, uh, Emma and Saida, but I also want to recognize and, and thank uh, Amanda for being here as a graduate student. I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, I hope that uh, our, our department will continue to have uh, conversations that are not hierarchically arranged as they may have been in the past. Well, thank you for having me and thank you to Emma and Saida for organizing this event and for creating a space for us to continue to have discussions like this. 
Um, one thing that I would want to say in closing is that I think we are living through a remarkable moment in time, but one thing that's crucially important and something that we've touched on in this panel is that we don't really, we're historians, we can tell you about the past but not the future. And it's really important that we, when, when the news cycle moves on and pundits are talking about different things that we still remember the urgency of these conversations because the, the problems that we're trying to address now have existed for a very long time and are not going to go away. Um, no matter how loudly we protest right now, we need to continue to care when it's a year from now or 10 years from now or 57 years from now. And one of the ways that we can do that is by creating things, hopefully like this series of conversations and, and sort of enshrining those opportunities to create positive change in ways that will last, in ways that can move us forward um, so that we don't get caught up in the urgency of this moment and then let that sort of burn out. Yeah, I just, I just wanna just echo what, what others have said already. And I, and, and, and I, 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 don't see a, I don't see anything burning out anytime soon <laughs> in terms of, well, I see things coming down. And I think because we're in an election year and because we see the devastation that's uh, happening in the Sun Belt and other parts of the country, uh, you know, I think that we're in it for a long haul here, you know, and I think that um, if there's been anything good about this pandemic and, and even about the Zoom world is that to some degree we're, we're interacting in ways that we don't when we're usually running around uh, campus in Manhattan doing a lot of our busy work. So, I, you know, I'm encouraged by, by this event and I also want to thank Saida and Emma for encouraging us to do this because I think there's going to be more conversations like this happening and more actionables uh, to, to move on um, uh, in the coming weeks and months. So, but thank you again. Thank you all for attending. Yes, thank you everyone for attending and please stay tuned for the dates as the panels are announced as they come out. We're aiming for monthly. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Bye everyone. Thank you.